saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Laura Youngkin of The Brave Millennial. This is Lars Helgeson, CEO of GreenRope and author of CRM for Dummies. I'm Allison Bloom-Festock, the founder and CEO of Know Your Crew. This is Brad Van Dam, president and CEO of Marge Confectionery. And you're listening to High Level Wisdom for New Generation Leaders. Are you looking to bridge the gap between your executive team and that emerging leadership that you know one day is poised to be the next tier of leadership in your company? Well, you should make sure that we have a conversation about the High Level Wisdom Workshop. It's a fun intensive that is one day on your grounds, working with your best and brightest of executives and that emerging leadership to come together to talk about communication, building out knowledge roadmaps, and more importantly, how do we ensure that we have successful transitions in our companies so we don't lose our institutional knowledge? If you want more information, feel free to reach out to me, Chris, at highlevelwisdom.com. You know, it's amazing to me today how many companies struggle to get their marketing teams and their technology teams to work in sync. What's also interesting to me is how many companies today are so large that they don't have time to focus on the future. They only really kind of focus on maintaining what they have today. And I know you as an executive really would like to carve out time in order to work on tomorrow's portion of your company today. Well, I tell you, there's a company that can really help you get into that and make the fortunate discoveries that you need right now. You want to insert Serendipity Interactive. This company is all about making sure that while you are working on today, they're helping you build out what you need to make the fortunate discoveries for your future. If you want to know more about how they can help your company, feel free to go to www.serendipityinteractive.com. That's serendipityinteractive.com. Hey, we're looking for more CEOs. That's right. As you hear on our show many times, you've had a chance to hear so many different CEOs who have talked to us, but we're always looking for more interesting CEOs who are doing some really great best practices to pass down that knowledge to the next tier of their organization. Feel free to reach out to us if you know someone who might be interesting or an influencer or who has something that might be important to executives. You can send me an email at chris at highlevelwisdom.com or you can go to our website, www.highlevelwisdom.com and leave us a note. Now, let's listen to this week's episode. 
Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. If you did not get an opportunity last week to listen to my interview with the CEO of the Predictive Index, I really hope you take time to go back and listen to that and listen to all of the previous episodes that we have. But this week is pretty important because uh, I had an opportunity, as I do uh, throughout the week, to speak to some fascinating CEOs. And this week, uh, I got a chance to speak to somebody who who is doing some incredible work uh, concerning the human body, concerning what happens around health. And the company that he runs is a clinical research company called IACT Health. They're based in Georgia. And this is a pretty serious uh, interview that I was able to conduct because we were able to talk about what they primarily focus on, which is in their tagline, whatever it takes. And when they say whatever it takes, it has a lot to do with clinical research. And so this company, IAC Health, is all about clinical research and not only just clinical research on animals, but we're talking about all phases of human clinical research. They collect the data that goes to the FDA to be determined whether or not a product is safe or effective for approval. This company has been uh, around for a number of years and it is held by a gentleman named Dr. Jeff Kingsley. Now, he's the chair of the Association for the Clinical Research and Professionals of the Board of Trustees. He was also listed in Pharma Voice as one as one of the 100 most inspiring people. Now, I want you to stop for a moment and take a listen to the first half of this interview, because what you were going to hear is somebody who is not only just passionate and I completely enjoyed doing this interview, but you're going to hear somebody who's very serious. And he's actually going to share with you some fascinating stories about how they've been actually been able to help people directly with some of the research and the medicine that they've been putting forth in the world today. They have over 30 products with the FDA right now that help people like you and me every single day. So I want you to stop, take a moment and listen to this passionate interview that I was able to conduct with Dr. Jeff Kingsley, the CEO of IACT Health. Dr. Kingsley, how are you today? Doing beautifully. Thank you very much and good morning. Absolutely. So here's where I would like to start, Dr. Kingsley, because we have you. You're definitely the first person, I would say, from a clinical research perspective that we've been able to talk to on our show. And what I would like to do is give you a couple of minutes to just share with our audience a little bit of background about yourself. How did you even get into this, you know, and and what was kind of your 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 reason for going down this path? But more importantly, how did you build IACT Health and 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 where where did this idea kind of spawn from and 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 where are you guys today? So 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 take our audience through that journey so they can get a better understanding of who you are and what you all do. <laughs> okay. Um well I could talk for hours on that topic. I'll, I'll try and keep this as brief as as possible. I'm a I'm a family physician by training, and uh, but I, I I knew even before I went into med school I was never going to be a traditional physician. I, I had no desire to do the traditional nine to five thing, um, but I had a passion for medicine, for learning how the how the body worked, and for helping people, for taking care of other people. Um, I finished my family medicine residency. I became faculty in a residency program. I had a normal medical practice, seeing patients, doing obstetrics, delivering babies, taking care of people who were in nursing homes, uh, the full spectrum of, of uh, family medicine. 
and was also teaching residents. I participated in one research trial during that period. It was on anemia in patients with kidney problems. And a friend of mine threw out as a, as a sidebar comment, why don't we start a research company on the side, something to do nights and weekends, like we had nothing better to do. <laughs> and, and I fell in love with the idea. Um, it stuck with me. I did two weeks of due diligence, meaning I got online and how much research is going on in the world, how many trials are there, what kinds of trials, what research is going on in, uh, in my hometown. Two weeks later, I grabbed him and I'm driving around with real estate agents looking for a piece of real estate. We leased 900 square feet, little tiny spot, and I filed with the Secretary of State and we were off and running. We were the only two employees, two physicians. Um, that's how the company started. So the company started to be a hobby. It started to be something that we were just simply passionate about. It wasn't it was never started, um, you know, we're going to start a company so that we can make money. We're going to start a company so we can have a return on investment. We're going to start a company so that we can do X, Y, or Z. It was started because of a passion for taking care of people and, and conducting research and being able to do something for the community. Um, so that's kind of how, well, I'll give you a little bit more. So started the company, and I was faculty and had a regular practice. And we got our first research trial. Our first research trial was a very intense um, antibiotic trial, a new antibiotic for treating patients with complicated infections. Hmm. And so it was twice daily intravenous dosing. So we're putting patients in the trial and then dosing them at 7 in the morning, two hours worth of IV infusions, and then seeing them again at 7 at night, two hours of IV infusions and physical exams and lab work and EKGs and very intensive trial. Wow. And I'm doing this as a hobby, and we're the only employees. So for six months, I was seeing patients in my regular practice, and I'm seeing patients in research. And in my regular practice, patients can't afford their copays. And I'm writing the prescriptions, and I'm having to question whether or not they're going to fill the prescription because they can't afford the prescription. And I'm questioning best care because is the patient's insurance company going to pay for X, Y, or Z? And at the same time, I'm seeing these patients in research, and I'm giving 100% free health care. They're not paying for anything. The antibiotics, the physical exams, the lab work, the EKGs, the IV tubing, nothing. There's no copay. They're getting completely free health care. They're getting more health care than they would otherwise, and I'm having more fun doing it. I'm able to spend <laughs> hours with these people teaching them, and I can't spend that in my regular practice. Wow. So six months in, I, got, I gave up my practice. Six months in, I gave up my practice, turned over my patients to my partners, and I've done nothing but research since. That's how it started. Interesting. So if you can, at like a 50,000-foot view level, help us understand the world of clinical research. So so when I hear clinical research, you know, as a, as a guy who's way on the outside and I learned more as I kind of studied, you know, uh, your company – the way I view it is, is basically there's uh, some some someone, you know, has a, a scientist maybe in the biomedical field has developed a, a, a particular drug that they think might help. You know, they've they've kind of studied the the animals first and tested on them and we are ready for human trials. And then I guess, you know, there's a company like yours that's available to be able to 
test these these clinical trials and be able to, as you mentioned, watch the results and see what happens. But what I'm more interested in is 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 where do you all fall as far as clinical research in that whole line of something's developed now we're testing it and here it's ready for mass you know market what does that world yep. look like sure yeah i had no idea i had no idea before starting this company i went through med school i was a practicing physician i didn't understand this world of <laughs> of of how this stuff happens they don't teach you this in med school it's kind of fascinating so Pharmaceutical companies, biotech firms, medical device companies, they actually don't do any of their own research. So pick a, a big pharmaceutical company as, a, as an example. What they do is they do have labs and they, they try and invent new compounds that are going to help people in the future. They also buy other people's ideas, small startup companies who have a great idea. So they do that very, 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 very early work. We call that bench research. Um, they then outsource to companies that do animal research, and they collect all that animal data. And if it still looks promising, they then outsource all of the human clinical research to companies like ours. They don't do any of that work themselves. So they do the work that's super early, pre-animal, pre-human, and then they outsource to us, we collect all of the data that goes to the FDA. In Europe, it's the EMA. There's a different agency in Asia. We collect all of that data that goes to the regulatory agencies. And then if it makes it to the market, that's when the pharmaceutical company picks back up. They then market it to insurance companies and physicians and hospitals. And so they, they have a business that operates on two distinct ends of the spectrum, and they outsource the entire piece in the middle. Interesting. Wow. Wow. So yeah, so to give give you a little a little transparency here. So when I was a kid, I grew up in Gainesville, Florida. And uh being a kid, uh I I was born with asthma. So Shan's research hospital, which is right there in Gainesville, uh shout out to University of Florida, go Gators. Um we uh you know, I would always be as a kid, I could remember getting things in the mail and they would said, hey, come be a part of this research. Come be a part of this trial, you know, come come be a part of this thing. And it's and it's really hilarious because now that I'm much older, I see things that are out now that I was literally testing for way back then. <laughs> and it's really, yeah. really interesting. We're, I mean, we're, we're talking at least, you know, 20 years ago. I mean, it's it's really kind of fascinating to look at some things. And I go, wait a minute. I remember that thing. And, and you know, in the world of asthma. Right. And so it, it was it was a really uh, it's really interesting to see things like that. And so uh, as being someone who's been the person inside of a clinical trial myself, uh, it, that's basically what you guys do. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. All right. Awesome. It takes it takes 15 to 20 years. So you were talking about asthma products that you were looking at 20 years ago. It takes 15 to 20 years to get through this process. If you invent the cure to cancer today, 2017, it'll reach the market perhaps by 2037. Wow. That's horrible. That's horrible. And it's it's that's part of what I fell in love with in research is that we can do this better. There are so many areas in this process that we can innovate. We can make this run better and bring products, bring the prices down, 
and bring high-quality products to the patients that need them much, much faster than that. That's a travesty for it to take 15 to 20 years. Interesting. So so I'm, I'm curious, um, just because this is very fascinating to me, uh, help our audience understand um, what is the, I guess I want, I want to figure out how to frame this right. What is it about medicine that is not only just fascinating to you, but more importantly, what is it about the research and having that human connection in the world of clinical trials that you get a chance to see? Because you're actually with these people. You you spend time with them. You learn about who the person is. But what is it about that whole process uh, that is is exciting to you and, and keeps you going throughout the day? Because I would imagine that, you know, every now and then you run across some bright spots. Right. That says, you know, hey, yes, you know, based on this research, this could really work and people need this now, you know, and, and like you said, but it takes 20 years to get to mass market. So what is it about it that keeps you going and that is really exciting to you? Yeah, a um, couple of things. We're, we're in this to change the world. We're not in this to run clinical research. We never started the company just to run clinical research. When I gave up my practice. Um, what I fell in love with was the ability to make a difference, the ability to change how research happens, because I saw so many things that were broken. And I love broken things because I love to fix broken things. Um, it, clinical research gives us the ability to change lives. And you're right, it is hard. It, it's way hard. It's a lot easier just to be a doctor, just to be in regular medicine. Um, and you mentioned it takes 15 to 20 years, so how do you keep going? Two things. First, we see the successes. Um, there's a plaque, well, actually, there's three plaques now downstairs um, with all of the products that are now available for patients because of the work that we did. We are now at 30, 30, wow. 30 medications, antibiotics, medicines to treat anemia, um, medicines to help diabetes, type 2 diabetics, medicines to help type 1 diabetics, all sorts of things, COPD, on and on it goes. There are 30 products now that are now available on the market. They're in pharmacies. Patients can access these. Doctors can write them. They're medicines that are used in the ICU and the ER and the OR because of the work that we did. So one, that's what keeps us going. Mm. We're able to keep that in front of us and recognize we're making a difference. Two, we're in this to make the industry better hmm. because the industry is pretty broken. There's no reason it should take 15 to 20 years. There's no reason it should cost what it does today. So we track all sorts of KPIs, key performance indicators, different metrics surrounding moving the needle in making our industry better. And that's what gets us really excited, is to be able to do research and not just do research, but do it faster, do it with higher quality, do it in such a way that it's actually a lower cost to the industry in terms of that R&D spend, research and development spend, Yes. So that, so that when it does reach the market, it's cheaper for patients. And so that's one of our massive, massive passions is to make the process of research better. 
Dr. Kingsley, I, I think that's a that's an awesome passion. I I would say some contrarian out there might say, well, that sounds great. But the 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 industry is really and, and this could be a media thing. So I, I you know, I, I would not claim to know as much as you at all. That's why I'm asking these questions. Some people would say, you know, well, yeah, but it's all about the money. And that's why it costs so much. And there's, you know, all these different things. When you say getting things at a lower cost so that it's beneficial to the end user, which obviously is the person who actually needs the medicine, um, not the people who are marketing it, not the, not even really the hospital. Right. But that's just the access point. Mm -hmm. But really the people who need it. What's one thing you think um, could be done right now to 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 help in that? in that way our industry is stuck in a bind most industries are I mean um, and is that bind political or is it do you, do you feel it's just more of what's happening right now with healthcare it's habits it's the way things happen it's old-fashioned thought processes that are ingrained and and self-perpetuating that happens across all industries, and it's, it's no different in clinical research. So there's so much that we do in clinical research that is silly, wasteful, and makes no sense. And why do we do it? Because that's the way we did it last year, and it's the way we did it the year before that. Um, that's, that's not unique to clinical research. That's pretty ubiquitous, but that's, that's what we could do immediately to help rapidly change the industry is if you've got a magic wand, let me borrow it. And, and just wave it at all the people in the industry and allow people to uh, wake up on a Monday morning and go, you know what, I'm, I'm feeling open to a new paradigm. I'm feeling open to looking at the world with fresh eyes and saying, is there a better way? Hey, why, why are we still doing it that way? Why don't we do it differently? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So earlier you That's mentioned... That's what I fight against every day. <laughs> I can imagine. I, I can imagine it only it's a, it's a greater... You see the pressure every single day. I mean, it, I'm sure it never stops for you. And, and and it's good that you have this drive. And so earlier you mentioned you're in the world of, of fixing things. You, you're in the world of making a difference. Millennials love hearing that sort of stuff. Um, it is it is shown throughout whether it's, you know, people really conducting actual research or just when you look at what a millennial wants to do from the workforce to their job, to their career, whether it's outside of their job, want to make a difference. So in your world, um, I, I would love to get your perspective. What kind of impacts or what was kind of like the 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 aha moment that you had in, in your space where you realized, ah, this millennial thing is real, but more importantly, you know, there's there's something we've got to do in our industry to to change the narrative and what we're doing so that we can attract millennials. What what's been kind of that journey that you've seen over these these last couple of decades that that you're starting to notice how millennials are impacting the industry of clinical research? Well, frankly, the way you phrased the question, I, I can't. Um, you know, you 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 asked what I. Saw. I didn't really see anything. Um, one, I think I'm probably, despite the fact that I'm much older than a millennial, I think I'm more like a millennial than than my generation. Ah. Um, so 
I, you know, I, I didn't seek out millennials for the company. Rather, I had a natural affinity for millennials, perhaps. Okay. Awesome. Because I, I like the way they're wired. They're wired like me. Like, let's get passionate about things and try and change the world. Let's, let's you know, who cares about the old paradigm? Let's scrap it and create something new. Um, two, I think millennials are attracted to um, maybe to this industry, but certainly to our company. Maybe to this industry, certainly to our company. The way we're running the company, the way we are, is is a natural attractant for millennials because we're kind of wired that way. So talk to me a little bit about maybe what are some of like the the nuances inside of your company that um, that millennials are are probably influencing or uh, really gravitate to of things that you all do that is you know normal for your company but might be different for a traditional company who 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 doesn't have some of those best practices or things that they do inside of their company. Sure. Um, wow, there's lots that I can talk about. Um, so we had already mentioned passion. We are completely, completely passion-oriented. There's seldom a meeting that goes by that we don't start by talking about what traditionally was called mission, vision, values, right? We don't talk mission. We talk about core passion, our, our passionate cause, which is the same, um, same thing as mission, but mission sounds more cold and dry. I mean, mm -hmm. This is our passionate cause. This is why we get out of bed. This is why we're fighting the good fight. And our cause is to change this industry. So we, we, we talk about that. This is why we're doing it. We talk about what we want the industry to look like 10 years in the future, which would be the equivalent of what's, what's the mark that we're leaving on the universe. In 10 years, if we've changed the industry to look like this, we won. And then we get down to the day-to-day -day tactics. Um, so, so that's, that's certainly one thing. Um, I, I mentioned mission, vision, values. Instead of values, we have a thing called fundamentals with F-U-N in capital letters because they're fun. Awesome. Uh, they're really, <laughs> the, they're really the values of the company. There are 16 of them and they're clustered in five categories. Um, it's so funny when I talk to people about the fundamentals and you'll have people from other companies and they'll say, there's 16 of them. Nobody can memorize 16 of them. And I'll say, the, the purpose isn't to memorize them. Why would I care if people can memorize them and can recite them back? What I care about is if people live up to them. Ah. Memorizing them is, is <laughs> like, really? <laughs> like if somebody can recite their value. Think about all the companies in the world that had value statements and people could memorize them and they could recite them and they had them around their ID badge and, they, the, the, and, the, and the CEOs of these companies are now in jail. Right. Um, what matters is that people are living up to them. So we have these fundamentals. We meet every other week for a quick five-minute meeting and talk about one of the values. We talk about one of our fundamentals, and it's people in the organization who are talking about it. So it's people saying, hey, you know, I caught so-and-so doing X, Y, Z. Um, kudos to that person because that was really cool to watch that person uh, live up to the fundamentals. And there, there are things like excellence matters and, um, and ditch your ego and speak honestly and open your mind and, and just all sorts of cool things that we get to talk about because we're investing in each other, not just in the growth of the company. We, wanna, we, want, to, we want everybody on the team to be growing as an individual. So 
some other things that we do that would um, that would be demonstrative of of, um, of of this conversation that you and I are having of our affinity with millennials and millennials' affinity with us. I think I mentioned to you earlier um, in terms of our policies and procedures, we're wide open. Um, companies talk about flex hours. We're all about flex hours. Um, I've said before, I'm not buying somebody's time. If I hire you, I'm, I'm not literally buying your hours from nine to five. What's the point of that? I'm, I'm hiring you for your productivity. I don't care if you work nine to five. I don't care if you work in the middle of the night. I'm buying your productivity. I'm buying your output. Um, you're a member of the team. So we tell people right off the bat, I don't care if you're salaried, hourly, um, if you've got an event to go to at 10 in the morning, go go to the event. I don't care. Why lose out on going to that event? It's not relevant. Um, what is relevant is making a difference in the world and, and, and being part of the team and getting this job done. Interesting. And so what has been kind of the overall response that you've gotten over the years is as you as you <laughs> instituted these things, because, you know, in some ways, some people would say, well, that would create, you know, the inmates are running the asylum. In some respects, I would say it sounds like uh, you get more productivity and more dedication because people probably feel like, you know, maybe they're getting uh, someone who who understands that life is beyond, you know, just sitting at a desk every day. Is that is that a fair statement? Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Um, we, we seldom, seldom hire somebody new to this team who doesn't come to me within one or two weeks in awe of how fantastic this culture is. Um, it just happened last week, in fact, and it happened a month before that I had hired somebody new, but I just hired somebody new in HR and we had our quarterly town hall meeting last week which is an all-hands um, town hall meeting. And so typically for the first few minutes, whatever, it's an hour-long meeting for the first whatever, I'll give people some updates. Here's what's going on with the company. Here's this, that, and everything. We're incredibly transparent. I share the financials. I share everything, um, my thought processes. And then it's wide open. I tell everybody, whatever site they happen to be working, there's people Skyped in. Any question you want, ask it. I'll answer it. And it's a wide open meeting and people are asking questions about cash flow and about the future and about trials that we're doing and, and um, areas that we should get into and whatever. We finished the meeting. I went back upstairs, went into my office, and I had just hired a new HR person maybe two weeks prior. And she came into the office and she simply said, thank you for picking me. I said, what? She said, this is unbelievable. I have never experienced anything like this before. I, I've seen all of the other things, the, 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 the other policies in action, and now this meeting, and just all of it. She said, just thank you for choosing me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining the team. Interesting. Wow. Wow. So, so on a, on a given day, um, how many would you say are, you know, employees are working on, you know, some of the work that you all are doing. How, how many, I guess, on average employees do you all have around the country and, you know, in the different sites that you have? We have about, 
upwards of 50 total employees and then probably 100 independent contractors. Right. Okay. So very interesting. So what would you say then um, in the world of clinical research, I guess, how how have you seen some of the differences in problem solving? So because I would imagine being someone who likes to fix things, you you love problems and you like to find a way that you guys can solve those problems. What's been kind of the difference that you've noticed the way baby boomers approach problem solving versus what you've seen in your world with working with a millennial when they approach problem solving? Interesting. Okay. (laughs) Fun conversation. So this is one of the things that, that problem solving, this is one of the things that I've encouraged from the very beginning. And it's kind of funny when you see people who come from different generations or from different work experiences. So I tell people regularly, I don't have all the answers. I've got ideas. I've got things I want to try out. I've got things that I passionately think I'm right about. But I don't have all the answers. We talk about ditch the ego. We talk about opening your mind as some of our fundamentals. Um, So I encourage people to argue. Argue your point. I tell people in orientation, you know, I want you to say, I want you to get to the point that you come into my office someday and you go, Jeff, I think you're an idiot. I think you're making a real mistake with this. And that's the that's the reaction I always get in an orientation. People laugh like I'm ever going to tell the CEO that you're an idiot. And I use it on purpose as an example. Like I, you know, people and and I I'm not kidding you. I've had people who've come in and done it, and or or say you know I think you're making a big mistake or whatever. And my my reaction is always the same. Okay, great. Let's sit down. Let's talk about it. Tell me why you think this. Because that's that's how you get real problem solving. Absolutely. Not by surrounding yourself with people who aren't going to tell you what they think. Not by surrounding yourself who, with people who think the same thing that you do. That's that's inadequate. It's siloed. It's it's antiquated. But people who are going to engage in a robust dialogue. Let's talk about it. Let's argue. Let's be passionate. And at the end of the day, we'll pick what decision we think is the most sensible and. Sometimes we're still going to be wrong. Great. Let's move forward and let's learn by, learn from what we do. And now, then we'll pivot and we'll do something more. Now, what's interesting so, about what you're saying, if, you know, and I've had this discussion with a lot of CEOs, because so I want to I want to get your take on this. Mm-hmm. I would say in, in my estimation, with a lot of the CEOs I've talked to and the ones I continue to talk to, at some point, CEOs just don't want to appear to be wrong. And, and have a fear of, well, if you see that or if I let you come into my office and tell me I'm an idiot, then you're going to see me as common. So I need to continue to keep some sort of a, a barrier in the sand, if you will, so that people continue to 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 respect me and my position. Um, what how is that, you know, Giving that sort of transparency and dialogue and openness kind of a I wouldn't even say there's a, a, a open door. I'd say there's probably no hinges on the door for you and your company. But, <laughs> right, right. but how, how have you seen that play out? Because I would say that a lot of CEOs and executives are afraid of, uh, yeah. you know, being seen as wrong. They don't. They, there's so I much pride right. in that in that role that 
I'm not going to let somebody, you know, 10 levels down from me, <laughs> you know, come tell me that that what we're doing is wrong and we need a new direction. How do you see that? I, I think you're right. Why? Because they want respect. I don't want respect. I want to change the world. I don't care in the least about respect. Wow. I don't need I don't need somebody's respect. I want team members that are going to help me change the world. And we're in this together. You know, um, inevitably, when I hire new people, they'll call me Dr. Kingsley. And right off the bat, I'm like, who is that? There's nobody in the company that calls me Dr. Kingsley. <laughs> I'm Jeff to everybody. And I, I intentionally do it because I don't want hierarchy. I, you know, obviously, in terms of an org chart, we have a hierarchy. There are people who report to other people. Um, that facilitates getting a job done. There's nothing wrong with that. But in terms of how the company runs, very little hierarchy. Everybody in the company knows they could come into my office, anybody else's office at any moment in time. Let's talk about something. Let's let's brainstorm a new thing. We form, um, you know, working groups, tiger teams, where across different areas of the company, you've got a group of people who don't report to a common person, but they're all together working on a project together. Another example of no hierarchy in terms of how we functionally run the company. Absolutely. It, now, you know, some CEOs may be listening to this and say, well, yeah, that's easy to say at your level, but I've got 30,000 people in my company. Do you feel like you could still do the same thing, even at a larger scale? I think it gets harder the bigger you become. But I think the mistake is in losing your focus of what you want. Um, I want to have a large research enterprise across the nation. Why? Because I want to change the industry. I don't want to have a large organization for the sake of having a large organization. I want to have a large organization for the sake of having a loud voice to have a greater impact on the industry. The smaller I am, the harder it is for my voice to be heard. Um, but I've said for well over a decade, I'm not willing to get large at the expense of our culture. Wow. If that's the price you have to pay, that price is too high. Wow. Wow. Very interesting. That that will definitely be on one of our social media cards for your quote. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm interested. Um, this is this is such a fascinating conversation. So um, being a CEO and, and being the leader that, that you've become and where you are right now, um, how has this even changed who you are personally, this journey? Because I, I would imagine, right, if you've been an individual contributor for such a time and you finally become the owner of something this large. And and I would even say not only just large, like you, you, you guys are touching the brink of humanity. Right. So so, sure. you know, it's more than just saying I'm the CEO of a you know company and we produce X. Right. You guys are really like you guys are at the cusp of what what we as, you know, consumers and people who, you know, go to work every day in our, in our jobs, you know, we need this medicine. It's not like we, you know, don't need it. So so how has this kind of impacted you personally being the CEO of of, of this type of company and, and how you approach, you know, everything beyond, you know, beyond just working? Nice. So it's 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 changed me. It's changed me as a person. Um, when I started the company, I was seeing patients, um, doing a lot of the research myself, hiring people, 
um, writing policies and procedures and doing all the stuff that's necessary to run a company. And that ate up a, t a ton of my time. As the company matured, I was able to hire more people onto the team who took some of those responsibilities away. We were able to pivot, change, you know, re review the way we were doing things. Today, one of my top three roles is leadership development. That's one of the top three responsibilities that I have is developing other people. Not making more money or developing new financial partners or, or any of that. Developing other people. And I didn't have that luxury early on, I suppose. Maybe I did. I mean, from one of the earliest time points in the company, we, um, boy, I, I wonder when we started this. I'm, when I say one of the earliest time points, I bet it was within one year of opening the company. Wow. We established $1,000 a year for continue, continuing education. And I told everybody, it, it's, it's for you. It's not for us. That money for continuing education is for you. You can spend it however you want. Underwater basket weaving? Sure. I don't care. It's for you to develop you. It doesn't have to be something that's in alignment with your current job description or any of that. It's about investing in, in people. Well, now fast forward to where we are today. I probably spend, let me think so I don't exaggerate. Let me think. Today, I spend 25% of my week mentoring and coaching other people. Wow. That's a massive percentage. It is. That's a massive percentage. Hours and hours and hours that I spend one-on-one -on -one coaching people, one-on-one -on -one mentoring people, doing that leadership development stuff. Because, you know, it, it's, it's not much different from the earlier conversations. I can't change the world by myself. And I can't make the company bigger by myself. It takes all of these people that are on our team. So what's the, what's the biggest, most sensible investment that I can make is in developing other people, the future leaders of the organization, developing people who can then move into roles that, that help us achieve our, our passionate cause. Interesting. So you just made me think of something. So I'm going to do a sharp pivot here, but I'm, I'm so curious about this based <laughs> on what you just said. How do you as a CEO apologize? By saying I'm sorry. I, I don't hesitate. <laughs> I tell people all the time, you know, it, it, if something something goes wrong, I, I'm perfectly comfortable standing up in front of the entire company and going, hey, guys, this is on me. This was my decision, and it didn't go well, and uh, this is completely on me. And I'm sorry and we've learned something from it. We're changing how we're going to do it again moving forward. Um, but I don't want any of you to feel like this failure was, was yours. I own this. Now, I told you that this interview was going to be something uh, amazing from somebody who's very passionate. And I hope that this first half of my interview, you got a lot out of it. And I hope that you actually take the time to go back, hear some of his thoughts, share, like, and comment with us on social media. You can do that through one of three ways, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the handle at High Level Wisdom. I also want you to go to our website, www.highlevelwisdom.com, and just be able to share with us what you think about the great and awesome work 
that this company is doing uh, with the leader of Dr. Jeff Kingsley. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to the show. As you know, in two days, we will provide you with part two of my interview with Dr. Jeff Kingsley. Thank you so much. And whatever you choose to do today, make sure you do it at a high level. Take care.